Hello, brothers and sisters. It is the Remnant Warrior here to tell you guys about another absolutely amazing way for you to get exclusive access to documentaries, audio and ebooks, and exclusive episodes of our brand new monthly subscription only podcast with myself, John, and Jeremy from By Their Fruits and a different special guest host each month. And best of all, you, the subscribers, get to vote and choose on the topic that we discuss in the episodes each month. You get all of this as well as the same access to the almost 200 episodes, books, and documentaries that you already have access to for only $2.99 a month. Now, we have a library of over 250 documentaries, ebooks, and audiobooks that we will be uploading to our subscriber only content each month you will not only get access to absolutely amazing content but you will also be helping this ministry to continue to spread the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to over 70 nations around the world that currently listen to the programs and Bible studies on Kingdom Productions Network. So guys, please pray about becoming a monthly subscriber. It's only $2.99 a month. That's less than a latte at Starbucks. So I hope you guys will sincerely think about helping us out and I love each and every one of you may God bless you all grace and peace hello brothers and sisters this is the remnant warrior and you are now listening to buy their fruits on the Kingdom Productions Network. By their fruits, you shall know them. By, 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 by their fruits. fruits you shall know them welcome to buy their fruits my name is jeremy stone i'm your great and honorable host and i'm with my other honorable host john brisson what's up dude how you doing uh jeremy hope everything's doing well out there we're doing good man we got a hot one for tonight and i'm excited for it 
for me too as well. Uh, tonight we have uh, Aaron Falkman on from Underground Publishing uh, YouTube channel. Who I've been following Aaron uh, for a while. Uh, I've read his book on the Revelation. It's an excellent book. Uh, and he is a self-published author and a self-taught uh, study of theology uh, for more than two decades. And a, a fellow brother in Christ and a dear friend of mine, Aaron, uh, welcome to Buy Their Fruits. How are you doing this evening? Hey, Dan, how are you? Doing good. So here recently on your channel, uh, you have been covering um, kind of the uh, history of uh, Calvinism, uh, which has made a rotten fruit, uh, in my opinion, over the past few uh, centuries. And uh, something I myself had um, uh, been studying, I know Jeremy Stone has too as well, as neither one of us are Calvinist. Um, when I first had became a born again uh, a few years ago uh, in the uh, late 2010s, um, I myself uh, thought I was a Calvinist at first. Uh, I was going to a Calvinist church because I heard a lot of Reformed theologists, um, and I was being pushed to listen to Reformed theologists like uh, John MacArthur, for example, R.C. Sproul. Uh, but once I actually started listening to what they were saying uh, from the Calvinist point of view or of, of um, a determinism, uh, I started realizing, wait a minute, uh, I was a former Gnostic uh, I had read, I had read um, uh, uh, Manny's works uh, myself, um, and um, I noticed something. It was very similar to my belief back then that we could be saved by our works and our knowledge or gnosis that a special elect would only have the special knowledge or enlightenment of the unknowable God. Uh, so that they could be uh, saved or reached enlightenment, uh, which was very similar uh, to some of the kind of elect special status uh, and determinism uh, that I saw in Calvinism. And it made me sit back and think about it for a minute. And I'm like, okay, after reading the Bible completely, after you know reading the New Testament twice, I started realizing I'm like, there's a lot of inconsistencies with Tulip, and there is when you're reading the actual Bible. And then I started reading the early uh, the writings of the early church, and I was like, okay, there is a real big discrepancy here because I wouldn't go past the anti-Nicene uh, uh, writers, um, so I wasn't reading any Augustine. Um, and then I started reading some Augustine, and I was like, okay, wait, wait, late late Augustine, not early Augustine. And I was like, yeah. okay. Um, and then I found out he was a man of key. <laughs> and it started all clicked in place, right? Yeah. He's a former Gnostic. Yeah. I'm like, was a former Gnostic. It's like, uh, you ever seen the movie Donnie Darko by chance? Either either one of you? Uh, I've, I've heard of it. Okay, so in that movie, if you watch the director's cut, you can see one part where there's like this force that emanates out of Donnie's chest and it determines everything that he's going to do. Like you see it like emanate out of him when he's sitting down in his living room and then he walks to his kitchen, he opens up the refrigerator and you can see it's choosing what drink that he's picking up. And then he picks, it's like foretelling whatever he's doing. Right. Okay. Not to give up the, too much of the movie, the plot, but the whole movie is from a deterministic standpoint that you can't escape quote unquote fate. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here, and so that's what made me realize it after, you know, understanding Tulip and being a former Gnostic. I'm like, wait a minute, this is contrary to what the Bible says, in my opinion, and it reeks of Gnosticism. 
And then once yeah. I realized that Augustine was a former Manichaean, and then, you know, when you read his early works, do you remember which his famous discourse he had? What was the name of the Manichaean he had a discourse with? Do you remember what his name was by chance, either Jeremy Aaron? Do you remember? No, no. I've, I've only read Augustine's Confessions where he talks about the Manichaeans and what he thought was stupid. Like the I have, I'll have to see who was the, the the discourse or the debate he had, but in that debate, he actually was still he still believed in free will theology. He was not a determinist yeah, yeah. at that point. He was fairly orthodox, yes. And uh, yeah, and so it was interesting to see that juxtaposition, but he kind of let it creep back in, and I can see it. So, um, yeah. Any um, thoughts yeah. on that, Aaron, or anything? Yeah. Do Do either you guys follow the channel Beyond the Fundamentals? Because Yes, I did after you told me another friend named Aaron. Yeah, I mean, I, I pointed people to that channel, and I would say um, I disagree with some of the direction he's gone more recently, but of all the internet sources I found, that's been the most clear um, substance to categorically refute Calvinism for me. And he says that um, it was because of his debates with Pelagius, because he couldn't find adequate arguments in uh, Scripture to refute him, he went to philosophical arguments from Manichaeism. Um, I'm reading his his work on free will and, and grace and predestination right now. Um, and I'm seeing, I'm not seeing Manichaeanism because I don't know enough Manichaeanism. Um, I, I know bits and pieces. I, I know stuff from, because I, I know there was stuff pre-Manny that was talking about, you know, the elect knowledge that God's beaming into the head of the special elect. That's true, um, yes. Because really quickly the Neoplatonists started um, making it about knowledge instead of a, a knowledge to basically self-actualization instead of, uh, you know, they looked at the, you know, the magic bath theory as superstitious, which it was. And, you know, I always say on my channel over and over and over again, say it's going to give you two bad ideas and have you argue over which is which. So you see the growth of philosophical Christianity, and then you see the growth of, um, you know, ritualistic Christianity, and then the counter to both of those is Montanism, which is really charismania in ancient times. Um, as far as how Manny influenced uh, Pelagius, uh, what Kevin Thompson at the Bound Fundamentals says is that he's he, he's reaching to his Manichaean tool belt to refute really um, anti-determinism. Um, because we don't really have Pelagius's writings. I mean, mostly what we have is attacks on Pelagius and on his followers and what they believe. We don't really know what Plagius wrote. So and we don't have all of Manny's writings either. We only have fragments of his writings too as well. Right. I mean, there are some commonly reported theories where you can piece together the internal logic of it. And essentially they, you know, it's the same. I mean, these guys were eating radishes because they said God is light. Therefore his homo, his usias, his substance is light and light goes into plants. Therefore, if we eat more vegetables, we get more of God in us. And it's like, it's the exact same logic that goes into Roman Catholics with the Eucharist. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally sound. The transubstantiation. Wanna... Right. I mean, right. It's it's just that they say God is light and it's 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 stupid, but it's just as stupid as Roman Catholicism. Um, but these ideas were floating around back then. And again, I mean, you, you had these kinds of corruptions in Judaism and in, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even, you know, someone like the Essenes and stuff like that. That's why. Sorry, they're taking so many baths, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, they, they're, they were missing the, the uh, spirit of the thing for the substance of the thing. 
and they're they were very heavily influenced by hellenism for 200 years before christ got there so you know hellenism taught the educated to hyper categorize everything and look at it in terms of substance and being and they were talking about god as in terms of what he's made out of for centuries before christ got there and really origin and his followers are the ones who brought that into the church but those ideas were floating around in the Gnostics for years before Origen was dubbed decent. And then by the time Origen was declared a heretic, he, his, his really Gnosticism had been influencing the church for centuries because he wasn't declared a heretic till a hundred years after Augustine. So he made Neoplatonism and Gnosticism normal in Christianity for a good 200 years before he was made a heretic. Most people don't realize like, you purge origin out of the church and you purge almost everything wrong with Roman Catholicism and, um, and uh, reformed theology almost entirely. Just if you get rid of origin and stuff that was stemmed from his reasoning, uh, the rest comes from really what you get out of infant baptism and um, what some people call Nicolaitanism. And that's the clerical hierarchy. Um, and what you have left is, you know, the Montanists that were false prophets but the reason the movement stayed strong is, is the same reason why so many people like charismatic and Pentecostal churches, despite knowing that it started with a bunch of people faking speaking tongues and writing chicken scratch on a piece of paper in an upper room of a barn in 1900. Like, we know this. It's all well documented that this was some lady who wrote on a bunch of chicken scratch and called it Chinese. And 20 years later, is calling German. And it's literally just like blindfold yourself and scribble on a piece of paper. You know, like it's so dumb. And yet, why is there a charismatic Pentecostal movement? And the answer is, is because the alternative is dead formalism, philosophy and rituals. You know, and that's how pe people see in those dichotomies. And, you know, that middle ground is kind of there, but it's more a watered down, highly ignorant of scripture. You know, let's just say nice things and, and you know, quote Christian catchphrases and stuff and, and not really think that hard, you know, and. And it's hard because the thinking man's church is not in non-denominational. And it's, it's unfortunately the Baptists have, they were half Calvinist to begin with. And yeah. so they can see how they're so susceptible to being turned over into Baptists. But you, you have to understand the Baptists were being converted to Calvinism, dispensationalism, um, Pentecostalism, Adventism, the Adventists were Baptists. So, I mean, because the Baptists were such an organic, movement of really just basic bible and you know oversimplification of things and they didn't have strong theological minds as a core it was just like well you know what do you fall for here and here and things like you know no dancing stuck you know until kevin bacon straightened them out so so let me let me ask you this so the way i looked at it, i look at it from a, a and i don't get a, a flack some flack from this for many reformed listeners um, I believe the the Baptist trail of blood book pretty much that any believer that was um, believed in believers baptism. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, that they were separate from Catholicism, that they were separate from Orthodox, as far as Orthodox Church is concerned, that they were separate from even Protestantism. Okay, and you could trace that back to the earliest uh, members of the body of Christ. Uh, yeah. believing in believers baptism would you agree with that i i would agree i haven't read that book but i would agree with that general statement and the reason is is because once you got into what was called christendom you, I, I mean if you had a kid that wasn't baptized as a kid one is is 
everybody's been taught if your kid's not baptized they're going to hell if they die and you, you're talking about infant mortality rates by the reformation of 30 to 50 percent um so if you didn't do that it'd be like you know imagine you didn't get your kid vaxxed right like look at the pressure we have to get your kid vaxxed or you're a bad parent right and i mean mm -hmm. that's just a vaccine where they change uh, uh, this is going to go online somewhere and someone's gonna flip out but you know that's just something that like if you know the definition of vaccine and know what this is I was dating a, 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 a PhD in pharmacology at the time. And she's like, this is not a vaccine. I'm like, I know, because I can read gene therapy. Right. It is. It, yeah, it exactly is gene therapy. And, and if anyone who's seen a few Jason Bourne movies knows how you get gene therapy into a person, you viral it in, right? Yeah. You give them the virus and then you give them the gene therapy and that's how you get it in your body. So <laughs> that's, that's scary as all, but Jesus, but I'm, the, the point is, is like, look how much pressure people are putting on parents to not to vaccinate their children and give your children fluoride and all the stuff they've done over the years. So think about like 30 to 50% infant mortality rate. And the only way you can secure their salvation is by infant baptizing them. That's just, you know, you, you gotta look at things from the least common denominator because the reality is, is what moves the mob moves history. And, you know, the, the, the wise minds and the brilliant minds might be in the books, but it's only a few sound, sound bites that are in there. Their logic and their reasoning is not in there, which is why people can be like, oh yeah, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a preacher, prince of preachers, and he was a Calvinist. And if you read Spurgeon, which I did today, he was converted in a Methodist church. He was a nominal congregation and congregationalist until that, infant baptized. And then he became a preacher in a, uh, a Reformed Baptist church at age 19. I mean, this, wow. is, this is how unwise you are. This guy just, just became a Christian, and you throw him in a pulpit because he's a good speaker. And but even years later, he said, yeah, I'm a Calvinist in terms of I follow Calvin's teachings. But Calvin himself didn't believe in regeneration preceding faith for adults. He believed in he believed it in, for for infants. And that's one of the things I got marked down in my paper. I said at Phoenix Seminary is that I said, you know, I, I wrote down, I said this, this, this doctrine of regeneration preceding faith is predicated on infant baptism. And he just said, you can't prove that. That's what, that was his comment. He just marked me down and said, you can't prove that. And I'm like, it's in your own textbook. Herman Babbink admits it. And you don't have, I don't need like a dissertation to prove when somebody says uh, adults, uh, regeneration is after faith for adults, but it's before faith for infants. Um, and then I read the canons of Dort and it's not just the tulip that's in there. It's a promise that if your kids are baptized, they're going to have it. And your common sense is like, okay, if you don't believe in Roman Catholic sacramental baptism, which is efficacious on the basis of it's the one true church doing it, yeah. you need another justification for that because it's not rational. If you, I mean, if you understand what the Catholics taught about regeneration, what the Lutherans taught, and then what the Calvinists taught, both the Catholics and the Lutherans are saying, yeah, well, if the one true church baptizes you, that's who Jesus gave the magic powers to ensure that that baptism causes your regeneration. And then the Lutherans will say, well, which the Bible does not say at all, by the way. No, but then the Lutherans will say, well, no, the baptism magically causes your regeneration, but that's because of faith. And if any legitimate past pastor does it, then it's OK. Um, and then the Calvinists go a bit further and they say, no, 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 it's legitimate because regeneration precedes faith. And therefore, God can regenerate a person um, based on his own divine efficacious grace and it, it that if they don't ever believe it's okay 
I mean, think about what they're saying. You're saying you're saved because you're elect. You don't have to believe to be saved. And in, in the Anabaptists were the only one that said they invented the age of accountability or didn't invent it, but they, they looked at what Christ said and said, well, wait a minute, he says their angels are always before the Father. And the only other instance of, of referring to a person's angel in scripture is in Acts 13 when they think Peter's dead and they say, no, you know, that's not him knocking at the door, that's his angel. They think it's a ghost, you know? So, I mean, that you just get the context of scripture and you go, that's the only other reference point we have to we don't have guardian angels or king david a, thought his kid you know the the, the child that um god took uh-huh yeah. yeah so i mean you know again you can't for say for sure but i think david you know i mean it's obvious there's there's, there's enough evidence that scripture is saying that the the souls of little children go to heaven right yes um and the answer is as, as simple as the fact that paul says when he consciously sinned knowing the law in other words, knowing what he was doing with God, he, he made a moral choice to sin anyways. That's when he died. That's when he was separated from God, just like Adam and Eve. Yep. It doesn't it doesn't mean that we're not all condemned in Adam's sin, but we're not condemned to spiritual separation from God. We are condemned to bodily death. Yep. And that, and that is the bondage to sin through the fear of death, which then makes us um, unable to live an un, a sinless life. That's why the doctrine of original sin um, is, is such a fallacy because right. we're being held accountable for Adam and Eve's sin. But where in the Bible, from what I can see directly as far as when it comes on the terms of salvation and the separation from God, has anybody been held accountable for someone else's sin to drive never. them to have that separation? Never. I've never, I don't see it in scripture. No, because if you, and that's the thing too, is here's what's weird is, the Roman Catholics, the Originists, the Augustinians, they started adopting Platonic reasoning about, you know, substance and, and accidents, if you understand that whole philosophy, and um, these dichotomies that, that exist philosophically, but they don't exist, exist scripturally, and the ones that do exist, exist scripturally, which is the distinction between the inner man or the, the soul and spirit and the body, I mean, that's replete from Genesis to Revelation. If it's not, God lied in Genesis 2, because he said, on the day you eat thereof, you'll die. And this was well understood in Jewish theology long before Christ got there that, yeah, Psalm 90 says the day to the Lord is a thousand years. Adam's body lived nearly a thousand years. Every man has to die before a thousand years bodily or God's a liar because God created three days before he created the sun, moon, and stars. So therefore, there's a there's a kind of day that's known only to the Lord in terms of its length. Yeah. And God, and God revealed that through Moses at the same time he, he had the book of Genesis written. So it's not like it's some mystery that they had to figure out by, by rabbis 500 years later. They have it in the first generation before they even get into the promised land. And and so you have Adam dying spiritually when he sins. And Paul, Paul gives you that revelation because you don't have that taught anywhere else. But what you do have is in Ezekiel uh, 18, the Lord talks about how the children or the fathers have eaten bitter grapes and the children's teeth are set at edge. Now you have Jeremiah, the son of a priest who is a prophet saying that, and you have Ezekiel who's a priest who's saying that, okay? These are not no scrubs who don't know their theology. They're both saying, um, this saying is used in Israel that the fathers that have, eat, have eaten bitter grapes and the children's teeth are set at edge. That sounds an awful lot like animate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we're suffering for it, right? 
And that's what they're doing. And they're using that as an excuse for the way that they are. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so, so they've got their own version of original sin as an excuse for the fact that they're wicked. And God's saying, you won't be able to use these sayings anymore because I'm telling you the soul that sins must die. And it's my desire for everyone to live, but the soul that sins must die. And he's saying, so as far as the soul is concerned, you could be a sinner your whole life, but at the end of life, if you turn from to God, in other words, he's talking about your soul, not your body. He's not talking about you walking in perfection. He's talking about your soul repenting and turning back to God. He says, you'll live. But if you live a whole righteous life and in the end of your life, you, you're, you're pissed off at God because you didn't get to marry, you know, Susie hot butt or whatever, and, and become, you know, the world famous guy with the Porsche and, you know, beautiful women all over him, then, then you're pissed at God. And so therefore you're going to turn and go get your beautiful women and your hot rod by stealing. Right. Then if that's what your choice was, you never loved God. You were just doing good for the sake of, you know, what you felt you deserved in terms of honor. You had a stony heart and you turned from God. You, you got offended and fell away. And Jesus is teaching this stuff. And so that guy, you're going to hell. Why? Because at the end of your life, you, you didn't choose God. And you never and then, believed heart, him in the first place. Your heart never was with God in the first place. The only moment that matters in your entire life is the moment that you die. Where Where is your heart towards God? The moment that you're born, we're all born in bondage to sin. We're all born dying, right? What happens before you die? And, and that's so abundantly clear. We're in bondage to sin through the fear of death. And what he's, what he's telling people in terms of the new covenant is that um, in Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to write my laws on your heart. And in Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my ways. So he's telling the Jews this. And obviously when God's prophesying stuff, the inference is, uh, yeah, you believe what I'm saying to you. So this applies to you, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an unbeliever, it doesn't apply to you because your name is Jew, right? Like you have to believe what God's saying, right? And this is Romans nine. This is Abraham, you know, being accounted with righteousness. But the point is, is he's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart with new desires, setting you free from the bondage of the fear of death, which causes you to not walk sinlessly. Yeah. Now that you have that, you're able to walk sinlessly. It doesn't say you're going to, but it says you're able to. Yeah. It says God always. Which is against sinless perfectionism. Right. Well, and sinless perfectionism is like where you hit a plateau where you can be on cruise control for the rest of your life, which is what Wesley taught. And Wesley even taught you could fall from that state. But the point is, is like, again, false dichotomy, you know, two bad ideas and fight over which one's better. The point, nobody's saying, nobody's saying God makes you become perfect or, or, or that you can, through your will, get to a state where you'll never sin again. He's saying he makes you able in every situation of temptation to do the right thing. He's, he's telling you there these, these are decisions. These are not like degrees of how pure it was when you did it. That's all progressive sanctification and your remaining sin and, um, you know, mortal and venial sins and all this Catholic stuff that's added to the mix to confuse the issue. The, the issue is God gives you a series of choices and it's like breaking the law, right? It's like, did you speed or did you not? Okay. If you sped, did you sped accidentally or did you sped because you knew no one was looking? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like, this is, these are simple, you know, if it's, if it's a, then it's not B, these are simple things. Right. And he's saying in every instance, God provides you a way out. In other words, Oh, you knew you were speeding slow down. Right. And this is something we all do. Right. 
well, why do we speed? Because we know no one's looking and it's not really causing any harm. Okay, why do you look at your neighbor's wife? Because we know that nobody's looking and it's not really causing any harm. Jesus says it is, right? Mm-hmm. So, 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 you know, that I'm using an example of speeding because I know I speed. I know I'm guilty of that. But am I saying that I'm, I speed because God hasn't regenerated me enough? He hasn't progressively sanctified me to the point where I don't want to speed? Or am I saying I, I speed because I'm lazy and I don't pay attention? Or because I'm careless and I don't, you know, take it seriously enough because there's still, you know, there's still some of my fleshly desire that I just don't want to, you know, be that conscious of it. Yeah. You know, and and the answer is obviously it's not something that's lacking in what God did. If I'm born again, well, the Calvinists don't teach that neither do the Baptists. They teach you that, you know, progressives, when, when they mean progressive sanctification, what they mean is progressive regeneration. Because regeneration is what makes you a new creature and able to walk the way Christ walked because you're born of his nature. And they're saying, well, you're, 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 you're gradually born of Christ's nature. And it's like, no, 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 no. In the inner man, I'm born of Christ's nature 100% when I'm born again. I'm sanctified 100% when I'm born again. And they take these few verses about sanctify you fully and being sanctified. And they don't realize every contextual passage where he uses the term being sanctified, he's talking about groups of people. And so what saying, ma- so what makes a person uh, for myself for example i notice i've become more convicted on certain sins that i previously had beforehand or that i'm actually mm-hmm. sinning less the longer that i've been born again um yeah. so what would what would that be from would that be the holy spirit convicting me more would that be no, me becoming it, yeah. more would me becoming more aware of the sins that i do and choosing not to sin um what, uh, what would that be well, yeah, both of those things. I mean, you're you're maturing in faith, right? He says, know the truth and the truth will make you free, right? Every sin we commit is a deception. And the, the reason is, is because if I speed, what I'm deceived in the thinking is that one, as either I need to get there faster, two, I'll enjoy myself if I'm going faster, you know, three, that it's not dangerous, four, that no one's looking because God's looking, right? Like think of how many lies I have to tell myself to speed, right? Yeah. And what, the, what increasing knowledge of the scriptures that is made understandable to you by the Holy Spirit, not just what those words on that page mean, but how your heart has been in interaction with the truth of that word, right? That matures. And it's, it's no different than saying, you know, well, you know, I, I know, I, I know what um, makes my wife upset because she yells at me when I do that and saying, well, I know it makes my wife upset because I've learned to understand her body language over time. Yeah. yeah. So we learn to feel the Holy Spirit. We learn to sense the Holy Spirit. We learn to hear from the Holy Spirit. And then we ultimately learn what the Holy Spirit wrote down in, in hard copy, right? So if, 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 you know, I'll just give an example. Like I'm, I'm seeing a woman that I, I'm considering marrying. And so I asked her and, you know, I showed her that, you know, I, I said, I want you to write down what you think uh, a Christian woman is. Because this woman's been divorced before. And, you know, I can forgive anyone for divorce because God's forgiven me for much worse than that. But I need to know what you believe a Christian woman ought to be. And, you know, we've had really good conversations about understanding the difference between objective morality and our preferences. Because, you know, I want her to know that your feelings matter because I love you, but you have to obey God. And I want to make sure you understand what obeying God is because my first priority as a husband is not to give you what you want and it's not to that for you to give me what i want it's to wash you with the word and to make sure that you're you're living like a godly wife because that's between you and god and that's more important than what's between you and me 
I can't come in between that. Yeah. And if I'm a if I'm a husband, I'm leading you to Christ, not pulling you away from him. Right. That's, so that, yep. so that's so that's my moral obligation. And so my starting point is saying, what do you think a Christian woman ought to be? We can talk about what you're looking for a Christian husband next, but what do you think a Christian wife ought to be? Because I'm telling I'm gonna tell you what I think a Christian husband ought to be. And and the reason is is you know, we explain this is like if you're not acting that way, before I start talking about my preferences or how I feel or how you feel or what I like or what I don't like or, you know, what you always do, I want to have a starting point that says, remember when you said this is how a Christian woman ought to be? And I want you to have a starting point that says, remember how you said this is how a Christian husband used to ought to be? Because I know I'm an impatient person. And I know if I, you know, raise my tone or, you know, and just get sick of the conversation or whatever, I want somebody who's able to say, I thought you said a Christian husband's supposed to patiently instruct. That's true. Yeah. Right. And I'm going, yeah, I did say that, didn't I? You know, and, I, and my framework for reference is always like treat you the way God treats me, not the way that I feel like you're. And you're supposed me. to show agape love uh, right. as, you know, and, as Christ loved you know, the church. So, um, right. And leadership laying down your life and all that. Yep. So the point is, is like, we're writing these things down now. Right. But the, think about how many unspoken things are not written down there that I'm going to learn over time to go, yeah, but this is what really makes her happy. This is what makes her feel loved. She doesn't like when I do this, you know, so I'm just not going to do it, you know, and, and that's, that's what it takes to make a marriage work, right? It's, it's more than just the things that are written. Well, it's the same with the relationship with God. He wrote down everything you need to know, but those things um, trickle out into all these other behaviors and attitudes and, and, you know, uh, choices with your time and your, your treasure. Well, there's your- sins for conscious sake for each individual person, right? The sins that you struggle specifically that God yeah. and the Holy spirit knows specifically that's specific to you. Right. right. And so those aren't necessarily all listed a hundred percent in the Bible, but no. the Holy spirit does convict you of those specific sins, which may be a sin for you or Jeremy or may not be a sin for me or vice versa. Okay, right. You do so. anything that goes against your, <clears throat> goes against your conscious, then you're sinning. It's sin. Yeah. And over the course of our walk with God, it's like you have so many, you know, bootleg fast forward versions of this, but, but this is what the Holy spirit does. John is that over time, he, he teaches you to understand the deceptions in your own heart where they contradict the scripture. And that's why it's so important to know verses like out of the overflow of the heart, and the mouth speaks, because what he's saying is, you're going to say stuff that's according to what's in your heart. Right. And, you know, I catch people all the time saying, Hey, you know, you, you've said this three times in the past month. You know what that means? It means you believe it. Right. Even if you just believe it to make an excuse to do that thing, that's, yeah. that's the lie. And, you know, I've had years of, you know, 20 years with the Lord. It's like, how many things see, you know, showing me, yeah, you say this or other people say, you say this a lot, you know, what, what is this reflecting? It's reflecting something going on in your heart. And that thing could be guilt. It could be shame. It can be bitterness, resentment, whatever it is. But the point is, is you're saying it because it's in your heart. So you you need to take that and you need to hold that up against the word of God. Well, and say, well, well, there's something you said in one of your most recent streams where the Holy Spirit actually convicted me uh, was that, you know, I had been holding to, to emotionalism because uh, I'm not a very emotional person. Uh, mm-hmm. myself okay i'm more uh, a lot more sympathetic than i am empathetic okay mm-hmm. and so i you know when you were talking about how you know emotionalism for um some you know for some christians or some experiences isn't necessarily an anathema thing 
You know, mm-hmm. it, the Holy Spirit really did convict me on that. I realized that. And I'm like, yeah, we're so knee jerked because of the charismatic uh, Pentecostal, which is interesting, Pentecostal speaking in tongues, Pentecost, right? It makes, you know, made me think, you know, um, you know, that, that that's actually right, because I do believe the gifts and the uh, gifts of the spirit still exist, right? I do believe the prophesying still occurs, right? And everything. And so I, I you know, I sit there and think about it. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I realized that I'm like, maybe I have been too harsh on making, try to make everything intellectual. But yeah. then there's certain family members that I have that claim that they feel something at one church, but feel nothing or very little somewhere else and it makes me think okay this other church is a calvinist church maybe it's a distortion of the gospel being preached and it's squelching any love or the working of the holy spirit in this person that may arise uh, at a different doc you know more doctrinal uh appropriate church does that make any sense yeah, no, it does. And, and that's the thing when the, when the Bible says do not despise prophesying, if, if you despise prophesying, right, as a, as a denominational standard, guess what you're probably not, I mean, right after that, it says, do not quench the spirit or right before that, right? So the spirit, I mean, quenching is the term used for fire, right? And the spirit is referred to as wind, water, and fire, everything but earth, but who's earth? Right? Yeah. So, so the spirit acts upon us, right? Like these catalytic, what, what wind, water and fire do. Right. Um, and if you're saying don't quench the spirit, you're saying, okay, well, don't, don't put it out. Right. And prophesying is, you know, I mean, it's metaphorically referred to as fire. Um, it's not, you know, fire baptism where people are rolling on the floor having convulsions, but like prophesying is, is fire. You know, I mean, what's his name? You know, you know, rap rap battleists or whatever they spit fire, right? But yeah, I mean, yeah. Who, who spit fire is it's the two witnesses, right? Um, I I look at stuff like that and I go, okay, I take words very seriously, and when like when I'm talking about things that I would repeat, you know, I just had a really long conversation with with my 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 girlfriend about this, but like when I hear someone repeating somebody, I go, that tells me what spirit you're under. So if I hear you saying over and over again, you know, I just need to confess positively and I'll grow rich. I know you're under theosophy because I, I, I've been in the habit of this since my undergraduate of going, where did that idea come from? That, that phrase didn't come from the Bible. Where did it come from? I still haven't figured out where um, vision casting came from. So if you guys can find it for me, working on it, working on it, I'm looking. The earliest text I found was in the nineties from a seventh day Adventist. Um, I haven't found it before that. <clears throat> which is which is interesting because that that's a pretty much a cult led by a witch um if you want to get into lng white right like yeah. so so i look at stuff like that and i go you know i i i've, I've gotten into this and i this, these are more sessions and stuff but like you know the the term homoousios in the council of nicaea you just put christian orthodoxy under aristotle and plato you you said the standard of what christianity is is now determined by a word that didn't come from God, but from Plato and Aristotle. Its meaning came from Plato and Aristotle. And so therefore, to be orthodox, you must come under the authority of Plato and Aristotle's word. Um, and your best bet is that word does not contradict the word of God. Yeah. And I prove that it does. You can't serve two masters. 
You It says you will either love one and hate the other, or you will cleave to one and disregard the other. So the question is, is I'm telling you that word homoousios is, was originally used by the Manichaean Gnostics in the way that they talked about how God's substance was in the radishes because of the sunlight in them. Okay. It got into the council of Nicaea because, um, Origen used it metaphorically to compare what, um, the, um, Hebrews, Hebrews one, three says about how Jesus is the express image of God's person. Some translations will say essence or substance. Um, that word is hypostasis. And what that means is, is, is it being, it means essential being. So who God is. Okay. So what he's saying is Jesus is the visible, uh, expression of who God is right now. That's a simple thing to do. And that doesn't confuse people who read the Bible, but the word usia literally means what God's made of. Okay. So it literally, that, that's why the paper I wrote, I called it God stuff because I said it literally is used once in the Bible and it has exactly two, two denotations in Greek, which is that um, it's either the, the core material of a thing. So for instance, if, if um, I don't know, if, if, if my mic is made of plastic, then that plastic is made of hydrocarbons. And so that's, you know, carbon and, and whatever, like what the, the, the raw materials of it. Right. And so that's what it is. And um, and then there's there's a there's an idea of what a thing is. And that's like it's it's blackness. It's a black mic. So it's blackness. Right. Um, and and that's that's how Aristotle started drawing the Usia word into it, which doesn't mean a substantial thing. But the original Greek usage was either that or the value of a thing. And that's why it's only usage in scripture is when the prodigal son says, uh, give me my usia so I, I might go uh, and leave my father's house, basically. And he went and spent his usia on um, prostitutes. Well, the usia meant what, what it meant is the value of his share of his father's estate. So in that sense, it meant money. So he, so he said, give me my substance. And the only other words, you know, like like derivatives of that word are used have to do with stuff. It's stuff. And so you can't say you can't use the word usia in, in the proper in the properties of the Greek language to say, you know, what what is God's usia? That's like saying, what is God's value? Because you can't compare God to any other thing. You, or what, what is or God? what's or with it, what is the substance of God, which in and of itself, you can't even ascertain is, what is that spirit. is yeah so that i mean you can't and if you understand that that the, plato's usage of the word usia came from a guy named parmenides who believed that there was just the material universe that's all there was and these guys i'm tracing these guys back um and their stuff came from babylon the babylonian mysteries and so these guys were writing poems talking about basically demons teaching them things and then within the construct of that wor worldview where people were pedophiles, Plato and Aristotle, who I don't think they were pedophiles, um, but they were writing what the people of their age thought about homosexuality and pedophilia and not saying it was wrong. Um, and, and it was these guys who in that context started, you know, categorizing and philosophizing about what is, is and what, what being is and what it means. And, and Aristotle took that from Plato because Plato started talking about an idealized version. In other words, where there, there's the accidents and the substance. So it's like the, the substance of a thing is I see a black mic. Well, what's the accidents of a mic? It's like, what well, what a mic is ideally, right? 
And so Plato's, if you guys know about his realm of forms and his uh, allegory of the cave where we just see the shadows, but the real is somewhere up in the light. Um, that stuff that's up in the light was not immaterial necessarily. It was just not embodied in the sense that we could behold it. And so his realm of forms was like a heaven, but what it really was is a heaven where it's, it's materially perfect. So think about it like this. Think about the temple in the heavens in the book of Hebrews, right? It's a materially perfect, uncorrupt temple, right? Yeah. Okay. Is the, is the, is that temple made of what God's made of? No. Or is he distinct from it too? He's distinct from it too. Right. So the heaven of heavens cannot contain God, right? That's what Solomon says. So which means God transcends even the heaven of heavens. It's like okay? God transcends time and space as well, too. I mean, it's it's exactly so. So if it, everything that we can behold is less than God, okay, and and in Him we live and move and have our being. So God transcends the heaven of heavens, right? And Paul says that Solomon says it. We have our two witnesses. But the difference between between that Gnosticism is is we can know God. We can have a personal relationship through God, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and have God's Spirit dwell within us for those who are born again where Gnosticism yes. is impossible to know uh the 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 um the and the enlightened being um uh is is no as a knowable unattainable um unless yeah. the enlightened being the or the should I say the lightened being or enlightened being uh gives you as one of the elect uh, the special uh, knowledge or the gnosis to be able to, in an enlightened state, uh, communicate and, and and comprehend and to know. And you might only know this in in the afterlife um, uh, that a knowable God. Um, well, and, and that's knowledge in terms of knowing who he is, what he's like, intimately knowing him personally, right? Yes, correct. But but there's another kind of knowing. Um, which is is a matter of behold, beholding the, the the full extent of His glory, and the reality is is the only people who are going to see the full extent of God's glory are in hell, and the reason is is because they're the only ones who get to look at God from outside, and they're not going to behold it because there's no outer space they can go and look at God from a distance, right? They're in the thick darkness and they're in the outer radiation of God's fiery glory, right? And so they get to behold as much of him as they can see, but th th this is full force who God is. This is how much power he has. This is how glorious he is and have fun being burned by it forever, right? That's that's what it looks like to behold the glory of God. And and the thing is, is like Plato's realms at, of forms at best could be, at best, could be compared to the third heaven. Now, Aristotle, you got to remember, these guys didn't believe in a personal God. And so yeah. Aristotle started talking about, essentially, I, I'm going to use biblical language, but in his terms, he started talking about the third heaven as if God and the third heaven were one. So it was a panentheism, but a panentheism that was based on, on heaven and God being one versus a panentheism based on the material universe and God being one. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's essentially, it was an idealized expansion of Parmenides' worldview, which says, everything is one and it's all God. And then there are other philosophers like Anaxagoras that said that God is basically a divine mind controlling everything in the thing. So it's like saying, you know, everything is water and God's the one that splashes it around to make it look like there's, you know, a body of water here and, you know, some bubble over here and a splash over here, but it's all just the same thing. 
Uh, that's what Luther adopted to come up with his theology of where um, free will come is, is not a thing. So if you read these philosophers and you understand the trail of logical excuse me, um, progression, remember, it starts in Mystery Babylon. And this is not something where I'm reading Alexander Hislop and reading the symbols and making the Illuminati connections. This is historical progression of thought. And you know where this came from gets into the Greek poets through the, you know, uh, Babylonian mysteries, it becomes the Elysian mysteries. And out of these mysteries come the philosophers who are speaking in that worldview in the exact same way that Jewish theologians would be think, uh, speaking within the revelation of what God actually revealed. So you're dealing with two sources of revelation, and then you have people thinking within those worldviews. And that's what Plato and Aristotle were doing. And so Plato and Aristotle, by the time their ideas get merged in with the church, you have to remember these people, the Jews and the Christians have been immersed in Greek stuff for 400 years, and they don't realize they're being deceived because it's so, the, the worldviews are so close to being compatible. I mean, you, by the time it gets into the Christian worldview, you don't know it, but Christians are still seeing like, well, wait a minute, if Usia is a legit term to, to, use the name of God. One, why are the Gnostics the only one using it? Two, why doesn't the authors of scripture use it? Because what we do know is that the authors of scripture had divine help and they never used Usia. Okay. And so we get there and that's where the fundamental debate happens. And the, the fundamental debate is, yeah, but can we use words outside the Bible to clarify the Bible? And it's like, yeah, you can do that, but don't make anyone stand under them as, a, as an authority. That's blasphemous. What you're saying is that I've written the Bible better. And, and that's what the Council of Nicaea does, but that's also what Augustine does in his confessions. Because in his day, they're fighting over God, whether God could have chosen better words for formless and void. And he spends 30 pages in his confessions going on and on about what his opinion is. And, wow. and he, he, he doesn't stand under the words God chose. And it's like the words form, formless and void literally mean empty and unfilled. Okay, so he created the heavens and the earth, okay, but they were empty and unfilled. And what did he spend six days doing? Forming and filling them. With I'm sorry, they're without form and unfilled, okay? So so they're without form and empty. So he he took something that was without form and empty, and he separated the waters from the land, and he formed it, he shaped it, and then he filled it with stuff, right? And and it's so simple and it's so clear, but that's not good enough for them. And they're literally saying, I mean, Origen and Augustine are literally saying things like, well, God had to say it in simple terms because he was just talking dumb shepherds and not refined scholars like ourselves. He's literally saying God had to dumb it down, but if he had given it to us, he could have used more technically precise language. And that's the kind of stuff. And every time you, you read about the councils and stuff, they talk about how more technically and philosophically precise language was necessary. Now you but, change that. I'm saying that's that not word. that's not true though, because Matthew was a tax collector. I mean, they're I mean, brilliant. It, they're brilliant. I, if you don't understand the authors of Scripture and how, their usage of the Greek languages and terminology, John's usage of logos, which is from Heraclitus, who is literally the son of the former king of Ephesus in the city that he's writing the Gospel of John in. Like, you think these guys are stupid? And they got they've got the Holy Spirit helping them. He knows what all these philosophers are saying. I mean, he's quoting the Stoics, he's quoting the Epicureans, he's quoting, I forget the poets that he was quoting, but I read these, these poets that he's quoting, and he's literally taking stuff that they're, they're attributing to Zeus, which if you know your biblical theology, Zeus is Satan, 
but there are things that they're attributing to Satan, just like the Gnostics think the, um, help me out, what's the Demiurge or whatever created the Demiurge, it? Yeah, yeah, to buy off. Yeah, but they might say things about the Demiurge that are true of God, right? Well, well, Paul's taking that and he's going, nope. He's like, that's true, but it's true about God and you don't know him. That It's not Zeus, it's this invisible God you guys don't know of. The unknown God, you don't know him, so I'm going to reveal him to you. And, and the brilliance of these people, not just how brilliant they are, but how succinct they are, with how few words they say such brilliant things that cut to the heart, that can only be the Holy Spirit. And you have these dunces like Origen and Augustine come, and, and I'm much more gracious to Augustine than I am to Origen. Origen was an arrogant fool. Augustine was a victim of his time. Augustine, when you read his confessions, it's very clear that this guy can't see any distinction between becoming a Christian and becoming a celibate priest. And that's what he's wrestling with throughout the book. You can tell that was the real fight. And he attributes what, what later becomes irresistible grace to a combination of his mother's prayers, which he he glorified his mother and God had to answer her prayers because she's such a good Christian. And, um, and uh, basically the fight against his, his carnal loss, AKA being a regular human being who didn't want to be celibate. Like it's that simple. It's just like, you take those two ingredients and you have these things that are redundantly said throughout the church, which is the distortion of Corinthians that it's better for a man to be unmarried. And that's not what Paul's saying. Context is key. It's better for a man who either has is sleeping with his pagan girlfriend or um, living with his pagan girlfriend or betrothed to his pagan girlfriend to remain single than to be married. That's the context because he's writing to a church that's two years old in a, in a very pagan, very fornication filled city. And he's, he's not saying in general, it's better to be married and single. Therefore, you're an A-team Christian if you can cut your nads off or just hold it, right? Like, which is what Origen and Augustine did. But these guys see themselves as A-team Christians and they need to make a name for themselves because they certainly ain't leaving a legacy behind, right? In terms of human legacy, right? They need to make a name for themselves and they do it by writing their guts out. I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how I've gotten so much theology done is because I'm 44 and still single and you, you, you reach a point where it's either porn or theology, like either, you know, you're, you eventually got to do something with that energy. Right. And, um, and I didn't want to become a porn addict. So I kept studying. Right. And, and like started four businesses and wrote two books and working on a third. And, you know, hopefully, you know, the person I'm seeing right now, this works out when we get married and I don't have to do this forever. But the point is, is like you find places for that energy and that's what origin and Augustine did. And so they wrote and thought and everything. But back then, I mean, imagine you guys think I'm a smart guy and I'm a brilliant guy, right? And then you start taking all my YouTube videos and find out, wow, he cusses on a lot of these videos. And then you start taking my papers from back in college. And I had a lot of stupid ideas. I mean, I can tell you papers in college would have been like Chrislam because I was a baby Christian. And I just thought I was just finding out for the first time all these similarities between Christianity and Islam. I wrote a paper in a world religions class where we were told to invent a religion. And I invented, I kid you not, I invented Origen's teachings from my own imagination. We're being reincarnated. You know, we are the fallen angels. Jesus is, um, I don't remember what I said. Jesus is the older son and Satan is the younger son in the tale of the prodigal son. And it's all just, you know, we're just learning and growing and blah, blah, blah. And it goes up and down. And blah. Like I basically did that from my own imagination. And I was probably a one or two year old Christian. And my, my, you know, new agey, weird professor in college just wrote wow on the paper because he just couldn't believe I did that. 
but imagine now you guys are fans of me and not only are you saving my videos you're finding my old papers from college where i wrote something crazy okay and that all gets published that's how, how you need to think of origin and augustine except it's worse origin's crazy ideas didn't come when he was a baby christian origin's crazy ideas came when he's been a catechist for 20 years and teaching christians when he started talking about all his crazy stuff about satan repenting in hell and about us being reincarnated he said god was just in picking jacob in pre-existence oh he he flat out said that god was just in picking jacob in romans 9 because of his past life and he said he was just in condemning Pharaoh because Pharaoh's going to get another life. I mean, the Mormons teach preexistence too, right? And so did, you know, origin as well that we existed in heaven before we were even born. Yeah, it was a common speculation back then, but or but again, because origin was so prolific, and then he had a following and a school built on him. His everything that came out of his mouth was considered gold. And what happens is uh, Pamphilius of Caesarea, who was uh, the teacher of Eusebius of Caesarea, who writes the church history, um, he gets thrown in, uh, in jail during a persecution. And rather than write defense of his Christian faith, he writes six books in defense of origin. And in one of those books, mind you, this is the generation leading exactly, this is the last persecution before the Council of Nicaea. It's either the last or second to last, but I think it's the last one, okay? And he writes six books in defense of origin. And in that book, one of his defenses of origin was because origin was a subordinationist and origin taught that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were two angels that hovered over the throne in Isaiah. They weren't God, they were angels. And so he would say like, God, the father is the number one being, and these two are emanations of God. In other words, they're secondary creatures. Okay. He didn't say flat out that Jesus had a point in time that he was created because he had a better grasp on eternity than Arius did. But Arius started just reducing that down to a catchphrase, which was there was the time uh, before time that Jesus was not. And here's the stupid thing is all your Calvinists still believe in a time before time. They called eternity past. There's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sitting right in class and I'm going, you could have defeated Arius by saying a time before time is time, stupid. So shut up. Right. And in the council of Nicaea, the better theologians were, were told to shut up so that the main Nicaean guys who wanted to become famous could, could convince Constantine that we're all on board with this. And it's just this fringe group that's out. So, what happened was in, in Pamphilius's writing on the um, on uh, the defense of origin, he uses a, a uh, thing that origin wrote where he's comparing uh, Hebrews 1 3 of the father and the son being of the same essence, using yeah. the word hypostasis, to the idea of like ice and water being of the same essence, or a drop of water and you know the, the cup it came out of being of the same essence. And he uses an, an, an argument that's essentially Arian, but he uses the word homoousius, but he's saying this is the word that the Greeks used to mean exact same substance or essence. And so therefore he's saying exact same quality. And so therefore he's not saying less than God. And so he, what he's saying is he's defending origin, but he uses, a, a, when origin uses the term homoousius as the defense, only origin is not using that to talk about the Godhead. He's using it to talk about the water as a metaphor for the Godhead. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because the Godhead is talked about in Hebrews 1.30, and then doesn't use homoousias, it uses hypostasis. And all of this had already been fought over in Antioch a generation before, because this guy, Paul of Samosota, who came up with modalism, he was one of the main proponents of modalism, had been shot down for using this argument to try to say, basically, that Jesus came later, 
he was, he was, you know, he was an emanation of God, but he was of the same quality as God. And so he's using Homo Lucius to make that point. And they're like, no, this is radical. Which I think at one time T.D. Jakes was a modalist. He still is. He still is. All the oneness Pentecostals are. And I mean, so, so basically what happens is Antioch, the, the local council at Antioch, not only shoots down um, his usage of homeosis, they shoot down the word altogether. And so did Alexander of Alexandria, uh, Alexandria's predecessor, which Alexander of Alexandria is the guy who put it forward in, in the Council of Nicaea. And Athanasius was his student who, who promoted it afterwards. But his predecessor shot it down because he knew the modalists used it. And the only other people outside of the modalists that used it were the Manichaean Gnostics. Those were the only people who used it. And so he, this is a really obvious, no, we're not going to use this word to describe the Godhead because the only people who are using it are the modalists who are heretics and the Manichaean Gnostics who aren't even remotely on the planet of being Christians. But because Origen used it as in an allegorical sense, um, they knew these guys who, who were behind the council and I see knew they could alienate Arius with it because Arius was the one saying um, the Manichaeans used it and he didn't like it. And they could alienate Arius while keeping all the Origins followers who included all the other Arians. Everybody who would have listened to Arius, they were all Origins followers because all of Arius's arguments for Jesus being a lesser being came from Origin. But so did the idea of homoousias being a, a legit term. And of course, Pamphilius of Caesarea is the guy who's writing that. His student Eusebius of Caesarea is basically the personal confidant of Constantine. And he writes his uh, ecclesiastical history praising Origen and Constantine for like 30% of the book, okay? So he does that. And here's the official story is when the Council of Nicaea happened, they all had the Council of Nicaea all drawn up using hypostasis. And the night before they published it, uh, they changed it from hypostasis to, um, for, for the, the word for uh, essence, they changed it from hypostasis to homoousia. And what the official story is, is that it was Constantine's idea. Now, Constantine's at best a, a, a baby Christian. Why is he deciding how we describe the Godhead in official terms? He's an intelligent guy. He's also the Pontifex Maximus of the Vestal cult. Yeah. There's so many things that are suspect there. But then a story emerges uh, in, I want to say it's in Rome, like a generation later, of a guy who knew there were three guys who were involved with this. There's Eusebius of Caesarea. Alexander, Alexandria, and then another guy, and I forget his name, from Spain. He was a bishop from Spain. And he knew the bishop from Spain, and he said that he told him that they they slipped it in to alienate Arius. But they said that Constantine, it was Constantine's idea, so they it couldn't be exposed that they did it. And But they knew that this was a heretical term that nobody liked. And what these three did is they distanced themselves from the Council of Nicaea afterwards never used that term in any of their writings again and left Athanasius holding the bag to single-handedly defend it. And so Athanasius started promoting this. And we have writings from Athanasius where he's telling people, yeah, you need to use this word homoousion, but don't think of materialism and material substance when you're doing it. That's stupid. And it's literally like Calvin is saying, you can't think God is evil, but God's the cause of sin, right? Like, he, he's doing that exact thing with the people of his day because everybody knows what usia is it's like it's literally could be translated to matter it's like saying what kind of matter is god made of it's like he's not matter he's spirit and they're like yeah but what kind of matter 
And it's like, no, 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 that word means matter. Like spirit and matter are distinct and we all know that. And they're like, yeah, but just use the word matter, but think of like primary essential quality and not material substance. And it's like, then say essence or, or you know, quality or like, don't say matter. Yeah. Like this is literally what people are saying in their own day because this is so stupid because the only people who are using this word are the people who believe that God is made of light and light goes into vegetables and we eat the vegetables and we come like God and that Jesus is made of the same stuff as God, but he came later and he's a secondary creature by that basis. And he is of, of a lower quality on that base or a lower authority on that basis. He's an emanation of God versus a co-equal with God who's co-eternal. Right. And so like, if you were to print the council of Nicaea in English, I agree with everything it says is scriptural, but if you print it in Greek, I don't, I don't affirm it. I can't affirm it. And when you understand that what that created was a, a philosophical and ideological and linguistic standing under of Aristotle and Plato, you just created a church with two masters. You did it politically with Constantine. You did it ideologically with um, with basically origin. And then you're going to do it um, superstitiously with infant baptism becoming the official thing, which Hippolytus of Rome started doing right before that. And, and those three things are going to coalesce to make what becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason the Calvinist teaching is so jacked up is because they're still trying to hold Christendom together. They're not yeah. like the reason these guys are killing the Anabaptists is because the Anabaptists are saying we don't need Christendom. We just need scripture. They're the only sola scriptura people out there. Zwingli was until the rubber hit the road on infant baptism. And he knew they'll kill you for this. That's rebaptism. And what rebaptism is saying is it is publicly illegitimizing the Roman Catholic Church, and they'll kill you for that. You're not, I mean, that's what the Donatists did. And that's what Augustine wrote papers against them to say force them to become Christians, even if you have to physically take their stuff or hurt them or enslave them. And that brings that me to. Oh, I don't mean to cut you off, but the, that brings me to one point is that, uh, you know, Augustine and um, what's that other guy's name that he ended up meeting? Is it um, uh, Amorosa? Amorosa. Um, yeah, Amorosa. There, there we go. They, they both came up with the, the doctrine of um, justification, justification of war, which literally states that, like, if you can't convert them with your words, torture them till they die right right and the reason is is because and they are both doing it against rebaptizers so right you had you had you, you had two groups but you had the first guy to do it was hippolytus of rome and he was the last roman catholic to write on uh revelation and daniel from a futurist perspective before amillennialism took over and he noticed get this he was the same guy who wrote the he was an elder and he wrote the ordination practice for infant baptism because it had become common by his day and then in his day, they have another persecution and people are denying Christ left and right. Why do you think that is? Because they weren't born again. They were infant baptism and they were told that they are Christians, but they truly never believed or had faith. Uh, so therefore, because of that, they just fell away uh, and, and denied Jesus Christ under the threat of persecution uh, because right. of that. Right. They're still in bondage to the fear of death. That's and correct, that's yes. The that's why Peter denied Christ. He thought he could go with them to the end. He believed. We all know he believed, but he didn't. He wasn't born again. He didn't have the power to resist the fear of death. Right. And so Hippolytus starts seeing this 
And uh, he, he's seeing this in his own day. He's seeing Christians live in adultery. The church is lax about it. Adultery, fornication, all this stuff. And Hippolytus tries to start a counter church. Okay. This is the first Protestant. He tries to start a second church in Rome. Okay. And um, basically he gets put into um, a prison colony with uh, the successor of the bishop, bishop that he broke away from. And they reconcile. And what the official Roman Catholic story is, is basically he came back under his authority, which is probably not. He probably just, they acknowledge that they both love the Lord and they're suffering together and, you know, got emotional. But like, there's nothing that says, there's nothing official that says he came back under the Roman Catholic authority. Well, not long after him, you're talking 20, 30 years after him, the Novationists who were influenced by the Montanists, the Montanists believed that like, the Montanists were so extreme, they said, you can't even flee during persecution. You have to stand and die, right? And uh, the Novationists were kind of influenced by them, but there's no direct link to them. Um, and what they were saying is, if you deny Christ during persecution, that's proof that you were never born again. We need to baptize you again if you think you're before you get readmitted into the church, okay? And then pastors who do this, you are not getting your pastor position back. We might readmit you into the church, but you're not going to be a pastor again. You deceived us into being a pastor and you're not even saved. Okay. And so the Novationists started this movement. And I believe Novatus was, was in Rome. I'm, I could be mistaken on that. But they were the ones who were called rebaptizers. Okay. Then the Donatists went even more extreme and they were in North Africa. And they basically said, if you are um, baptized by somebody who denied Christ or gave up the scriptures to be burned during persecution, your baptism is illegitimate. And so you need to be rebaptized. So the Novationist was a legit movement that they didn't recognize it, but they were really uh, calling out what was wrong with infant baptism without knowing it. Your, your baptism was illegitimate because you weren't a believer, right? Now, I can't prove that all these people who denied Christ were infant baptized, but I mean, you have the first references to infant baptism in Irenaeus and Origen and stuff like that in like the late second century by the by the middle middle of the first half so the first quarter of the third century you have hippolytus writing on it in official um catechism instruction and then within 25 years of that you so so it's obviously been going on it's obviously official within 25 years of that you have the lapsarian doctrines which is the idea is that well peter could have denied christ while still being saved and uh we we that can be that's a forgivable sin even though Jesus says, I'll deny you before my father if you do that. And, um, you know, they're still trying to fight to keep infant baptism in play because the only one who's really spoken out against infant baptism is Tertullian. But Tertullian's a Montanist and they're opposite extreme. They're like, you you know, they're holiness. They're, they're Wesleyan holiness, apostolic, you know, crazy over, over the top people. And Tertullian is really, think of Tertullian, like actually, can, can we do a shared screen here real quick? Uh, yes, I think I should, hold on, let me be able to give it to you. And we can save this for another session if this is going to take too long, but I yeah, just wanna... um, yeah, let's, um, let's have a part two soon. Yeah, um, let's do that because, because what I want to show you is if you get all of Christian history in a timeline, there's an exact mirror between Martin Luther. Like if the great schism is, is the, is the spine of your book, there's an exact mirror between Martin Luther and Augustine, between Zwingli and Ambrose, between Athanasius and Calvin, um, the Arians and the Unitarians, I mean, Arminius and Origen, which are both basically made free will the center of their theology, um, Hippolytus of Rome and George Whitfield, which were both about whether you, you're really born again, um, John Wesley and Tertullian, which were both studying the Montanists, 
And I mean, this goes on and like, I haven't even filled this thing in yet, but I could give you probably 50 examples where there's a total mirror of everything that happens between the first schism or, you know, on both sides of the great schism going from the crucifixion to the abomination of desolation, which is the antichrist version of the crucifixion. So like, if you know church history and you know your eschatology, you see what's happening. You're not surprised by the Hebrew roots movements. I'm just going to ask you this. Who, who are the theosophists the mirror of? Of, of, of previous uh, theology and train of thought? Yeah. Just think timeline and just think who they're like. I mean, you, I mean, modern, I mean, I guess in the past, they're modern, not- I could think. Well, yeah, yes, they are. But modern, I could say prosperity gospel uh, preachers in modern time yeah, periods. No, well, so so the theosophists, their stuff's going to mix in with that. But the, the early Gnostics mixed in with the Montanists and the Montanists are the holiness Pentecostal. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. As, right. a, as a former Gnostic, I can see that clear as day is theos is Satanism or modern day theosophy, where you can you have elements of name it, claim it, which has made itself into Christianity, but kind of like the power of intention and the law of one, um, mm-hmm. the law of attraction. Um, yeah, because you're confessing the reality that all is one versus like God actually doing something. They right? they say they say at one minute instead of atonement. Yes. Right, right. And so, so, and that was the same thing that the, the, uh, the early Gnostics would do. They, they make word salads out of biblical words and turn them into gods and stuff, right? That's correct. Yes. So, like, now you get into the origin, and during his era, that's when the Manichaeans are rising. And then, um, Augustine really mixes Manichaeanism to become that, right? And the mirror of Augustine is Luther. So, if you mix Manichaean Gnosticism with, with Luther, you get Calvin, right? And, and then if you mix Calvinism in with Freemasonry, which is the other Gnosticism, you get um, Presbyterianism. I mean, you get these people who are revolutionaries and, and their ideas are, are blending together in Scotland. And yeah. then they come to America and they event, they're, they're in the Mormons right now, right? They're the Mormons and the Presbyterians. And there's no, it, there's no surprise why the Mormons and the Calvinists are getting along because the Freemasons and the Presbyterians always get along. And so like... You, you see this mirror throughout church history, and I forget what we were talking about back in the day. I think we we're talking about Nicaea and all that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Christendom began with the Council of Nicaea and it ended with the Council of Trent. I mean, Roman Catholic Christendom. Mm-hmm. What these guys are trying to do is to bring a new American Christendom. Uh, think about it like this. Taiwan, remember for all these years, were the true China at the United Nations. They're, you know, the big, huge nation of China is 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 overrun but we're, we're the true government in exile right yeah that's how the presbyterians see themselves in terms of the roman catholic church they're the true church in exile they're the true roman catholic church in exile and that's why this professor is trying to push us to talk about infant baptism or baptism and communion as sacraments and we're sitting here telling them we're going you can't call them sacraments and then define them as something other than roman catholics define them because they coined that term it's their yeah. word they define yeah. its meaning yeah. You can't, as a Presbyterian with any authority, say, well, we believe in sacraments, but it doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from Roman Catholicism, but we believe it means something other than Roman, Roman Catholics think. And that's what they do with words. They don't understand. You don't do that. When you adopt language, you stand under the meaning of the, that language. And that's why it's so important to know when they put the word sovereign in the Bible and deliberately place it there to next to the word Lord, if you take if if they're saying they mean the biblical definition, then they have changed Jesus' name to Lord Lord. Okay. 
but they know it. That's not what they're saying. They're using the adjective sovereign, which that's their God. Would you see, would you see most of the Catholics and the Orthodox? And I guess after I say this comment, Jeremy, if you have anything else you want to finish with, and then um, Aaron can definitely tell everybody where to find him. We're definitely going to have you on for a part two, brother. That hopefully would be longer. Um, But I I guess one last thing is, is, is um, you'll see a lot of the, um, uh, the orthobros on Twitter, or even the uh, the quote-unquote Catholics like Nick Fuentes, run around mm-hmm. saying uh, Christ is Lord, mm-hmm. just saying Messiah is Lord, but not saying Jesus is Lord. And you see them right. constantly saying that over and over and over as some sort of mantra. Yeah. And so it's just, it's interesting to see them constantly repeat that. Uh, very similar to what. Kenneth Copeland, he, he finishes every show by saying Jesus is Lord. And the reason is because they say no one says Jesus is Lord, but, but by the Holy Spirit. And that's like saying this is proof that he have the Holy Spirit. That's it, how they it, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. You know, the, like you're saying, Lord, Lord, you know, uh, or or they're saying Messiah is Lord. But most of the time it ends up being meaningless mantras. It's empty. There's no substance yeah. to it. Uh, there's no faith to it. Uh, Jeremy, is there anything else you want to say in closing real quick? Uh, well, just to touch on that part, right, you know, like the scripture also says that they confess me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So it's like, he, right. that's why it's so important for ca- contextualizing how you and, and how you interpret the scriptures, because Kenneth right. Copeland can say, you know, uh, Jesus is Lord all day long, but his heart is nowhere near God. Like, right. And if you understand those scriptures in context, he's talking about a particular litmus or a shibboleth for that audience that they're dealing with, because... You're, you're testing them out kind of like saying say jesus came in the flesh to prove you don't have a demon right, right. like we, we not everybody who says the word jesus comes in the flesh is provably a christian right like we understand that right um but like go, going back to all this stuff these guys are um i'm sorry i'm losing my train of thought let's, let's wrap it up um the, the the bigger point i'm making is that there there's a mirror of what's going on here and if you get your eschatology nailed down and where this is going you can see what's going on here with the Calvinists. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to turn America into the, the true Roman Catholic Church as, as they see it. And they're looking for a new Constantine. And when we start talking about all the Presbyterian links, who is your big Presbyterian Constantine? Oh. Who, who, told, who told everybody he, was, he went to the famous church of the famous Norman Vincent Peale? Oh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. He's Presbyterian. Okay. And there are Norman Pitt, Norman Vincent Pitt was also a Mason, by the way. And, and I'm telling you, you can trace everything from the feminist movement to the social gospel, to trying to abolish liquor, to um, liberalism, to conservatism, like so many different movements you trace back to Presbyterians because they, they morph, they'll be whatever, because they're, they're essentially spies. They're, they're like Muslims. Like if we don't have the numbers, we're going to play, we're going to lay low and play nice. If we have the numbers, we're going to cut off your head. That's what the Jesuits do. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. They're, they're all the same ilk. They're all, yeah. all Augustinian winners, right? They're here to win, right? And they win at any cost because it's, you know, again, they can say if God allowed it to happen, it's his will and we're just the means. And they'll do whatever they can to, to kill true believers. They've been doing it since 
um, the formation of the body of Christ after Pentecost. They've been doing right. it ever since then. Uh, they've been persecuting born-again believers, uh, and they will continue to do so. And they mock us. They mock us on Twitter. And I, that, that'll be our next discussion more will be Calvinism and Christian nationalism, the rise of that, and why eschatology is important. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you know, they, they mock us. They're like, well, we're, we don't, we're not, we're not, Doug Wilson isn't our new pope, or John MacArthur isn't our new pope. Uh, you know, and don't worry. I, I had I had you know someone on Twitter who, who I do respect. Even you know, even we have our disagreements. They're like, well, we used to do that in the past. We're not going to do it this time. And I'm like, well, if the Gnostics are telling me, like Scott McRae says, you're either with us or against us. And if you're not with us, we're going to cut your head off. The Patriot Street Fighter at the Clay Clark Reawakened America tours. Okay, so if he's saying it. And, you know, so the Gnostics are already in line with this. They're already like, you know, if you, if you ain't for the second American revolution, if you ain't going to fight for America, we're going to kill you. Okay. Right, right. What makes me think that when the, the when the, when the Protestants uh, the kill born again, believers right. beforehand and if that, or people that did yep. not want to fight in the American revolution because they saw it as a Gnostic yeah. New Atlantean revolution, that they ain't going to do it again. All right. To they're me, absolutely. I don't believe it. And they're building up the numbers to get everyone to look the other way. I mean, we're we're Ooh. going Nazi five because that is the destiny of America. Manifest destiny was always an Augustinian slogan, but you guys need to understand the bigger eschatological picture, which we'll develop out in the next one, is that when America falls, the world is saying mystery Babylon has fallen. Finally, Christ is here, and it's the Antichrist. Yeah. So. Donald, Donald Trump. And they set us up through all that left behind eschatology. All of that exactly. has been setting up for exactly. this. And Donald Trump is, listen to this, Donald Trump is your fake Antichrist, okay? Now listen to this. These pre-millennial, um, these pre-trib guys have been telling you that the world goes into the end times when the American Christians get raptured because the majority of Americans are Christians. That's what they think, right? So what if the majority of Christians just get killed, Right. If we're disappeared in the concentration camps and killed and the communications are shut down because it's World War III and there's a pandemic going on, right? Who's to say we weren't raptured? That's true. I never thought of that. <laughs> I'm now, not going to say now, that stuff. Now, think yeah. about this. I'm going to tell you this. Christians are going to be killed all over the world. But do you know how the how the um, six seals of Revelation ends? With a bunch of falling stars. Do you know how the how the rapture looks? Like a bunch of shooting stars. You see what I'm saying? There's a mirror yeah. between happens go in the, in the beginning of 70th week and in the middle of Daniel's 70th week and all this is in my book because the reason is is everything is is pointing to a pseudo armageddon so when the antichrist shows up they're like we have all the signs and stuff to prove that this is christ it's the same kind of deception they had when jerusalem was destroyed they thought they had all the signs and all the prophets and all this stuff and i mean if you guys follow me i mean my apostles teaching book and this next book i have that's called rightly dividing it's it's about the true church dividing from the false church because if you go to most countries outside of america there is a blended non-denominational outside church and there's an official state church and everyone knows the difference but here in america we've got all the denominations fighting for market share that's true and all the dumb ideas in all of christian history are right here and they're all fighting for a piece of the pie and so we can't like it, you, i'm telling you guys get outside of america get to like grassroots Christianity anywhere, not, not big city Christianity, but I'm saying grassroots missionary evangelism anywhere in the world. And there's two churches and it's going to be like that in the end times. 
but but the the nominal Christians around the world and the false Christians and the New Agers and all this stuff are going to be set up to believe that oh the Christians got raptured, um, but now uh, when the Antichrist finally kills the two witnesses, uh, that's Christ killing the Antichrist and the false prophet. And when he sits in the temple and says he's God, that's Ezekiel 43. That's Jesus entering into the temple and having a seat and saying the millennium is now is now beginning. And the reality of what Ezekiel 43 says is he comes in from the east, which is that gate that that uh, Saladin walled up the bricks. And the Antichrist is going to come up from Egypt and come through the west gate, which is the gate to Joppa, which is the port city where the Danites left Israel from. There's no there's no coincidences going on. And I'm I'm fully convinced that the Danites created the Freemasons. All right. Um, we'll discuss that and why they're left out. Lot, yeah. Why the tribe of Jans left out. Can you tell everybody where they can find you, Aaron? Yeah, yeah. So my my YouTube channel is Underground Publishing. It's just look up Underground Publishing. It's a Batman face. Um, my book online is just just type in the revelation and the subtitle is Every Eye Will See Him. And it's just a book with blue clouds on it. Um, I'm I'm producing an SBL formatted version of that book. It, it's if if you know your Bible solid, it's an easy walkthrough because it shows you how in chronological order Jesus talked about the eschaton, and then it shows you how Paul talked about it in chronological order, and then it finally gets to uh, a, a complete run through of the Book of Revelation. I appreciate that, John. That's right. So. Here. So I'll stand by the copy that you have, but um, if you guys want to wait a couple months, uh, there'll be an SBL formatted copy. So if you're in seminary, um, it's something you can slap in front of the professor and the footnotes will, will all be legit. The formatting will all be legit. Um, it'll be a little bit more respectable for the seminary crowd, but it, it, it's an easy read. Um, 250 pages, right? Ballpark. Roughly, yeah. yeah. Roughly, yeah. It's very good. Yeah. Very good. The SBL they gave formatted, me one. Yeah, the, the SBL formatted will be about 300 pages maybe but that's just because bigger fonts and stuff um and and like i said i've got an apostles teaching book i'm working on taking some great classes to improve that it's just my own translation of the new testament and put in chronological order with the notes of the history of what happened from the maccabean period to the destruction of the jerusalem temple and then john's writings afterwards because this stuff's going to repeat itself and then my third book i'm working on right now is called rightly dividing and it's basically showing this mirrored history of the church, which is talked about in my revelation book. And then it's going to be showing how God is going to basically use persecution to separate the true church from the false and yep. lead us into a spot in the last days while the false church becomes mystery Babylon. Um, but it's going to be clear. It's going to be stuff where if you come from any denominational background, hopefully I'm going to be accurate, accurately representing your distinctives to the point where you see, okay, the Bible doesn't actually say this, so I don't need to fight about it. That's the whole point of all my theology is if the Bible doesn't say it, we don't argue about it. We just say, yeah, our tradition says this, but we learn what the Bible says and what every word of that New Testament means. And if Amen. you have that down, you'll know what the Old Testament means and you won't be confused. And that's that's our unity because the apostles teaching is our canon and it is our lens for the Old Testament. Amen. All right. Well, that's it for uh, By Their Fruits this week. God bless everybody. Uh, Jeremy, got anything else to say in closing, brother? Hey, man. Just can't wait to have you on again, bro. I, I mean, listening to you talk, bro, you have a, you, your mind is awesome. So I'm looking forward to the next one for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be posting some stuff on church history, so I'm not regurgitating at all. But yeah, just let me know when you guys want to have me back on. I'm usually free at least one or two days a week. All right. God bless everybody. Take care.
Thank you for listening to Buy Their Fruits. May the Lord bless the giver, the gift, and the receiver. <laughs>